When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This episode of The Commons is sponsored by New College Franklin. At New College Franklin, students and professors together find their place in an educational tradition that stretches back for ages, returning to tried and true educational practices and texts that have been discarded for too long. Through a robust exploration of the great books and the classical seven liberal arts in an environment of rich conversation, shared life, and spiritual discipleship, new college students see how they fit in the unfolding story of redemption. Take the next step in your education and join the conversation in beautiful Franklin, Tennessee. Come for a preview weekend or schedule a visit at your convenience and continue building on the educational foundation you've started. You can learn more at www.newcollegefranklin.org. That's newcollegefranklin.org. And now, The Commons with Brian Phillips. Welcome back to The Commons. I'm your host, Brian Phillips. Here in season two, we have been discussing major figures and movements in church history. And today we continue this very big bird's eye view of uh, these major events with uh, the Reformation and uh, the Reformers. So uh, obviously a very, very significant um, period of history in uh, particularly the Western Church. And I'm joined today uh, by Dr. Gerald Bray, who is a uh, professor at uh, Beeson Divinity School in Alabama, also a professor at Knox Theological Seminary in Florida. And uh, that's actually how I came to know uh, Dr. Bray, uh, was by taking a church history class of his and reading several of his books, including a fascinating work on biblical interpretation. Uh, So he's joining me today to give this sort of big, grand overview of the Protestant Reformation and some of the major um, figures and personalities involved in it. And so uh, I hope you enjoy this episode. And here begins my conversation with uh, Dr. Gerald Bray. Well, Dr. Gerald Bray, thank you so much for joining me today on this episode of The Commons. It's good to have you. Thank you very much. Now, uh, today we are continuing our season uh, covering major figures and events in church history, and we are discussing a monumental event in church history today, the Reformation and some of the figures who were part of it. Uh, so it's a big, a big topic before us. Um, and a little over a month ago, on October 31st, um, many observed the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. So tell us, I'm sure many of our listeners know the story, but uh, let's set the stage here. 
Uh, what was the significance of that day in church history, and why is it considered to be the, the start of the Protestant Reformation? Well, I suppose the choice of the 31st of October as the start of the Reformation um, is the view from hindsight in a way. Uh, supposedly on that day, Martin Luther or someone representing him um, posted a number of theses, a number of propositions uh, on the church door in Wittenberg, challenging uh, various practices uh, in the church, but notice, uh, notably um, the sale of indulgences, that is basically time off in purgatory, uh, which people could buy. Uh, and Luther was scandalized by this because to him this was selling the grace of God, um, you know, which of course should be given freely. Um, but then once you start investigating the whole question, you have to ask yourself, well, uh, is there such a thing, um, you know, can a human authority uh, determine what happens to people after they die uh, and who decides who's in purgatory and, and not and, and is there a purgatory and one thing leads to another uh, you know after that um, but of course at the time um, nobody knew what, that this would happen I mean Luther was proposing a debate uh, a, a theological debate and was taken by surprise as indeed were many other people um, you know by the way in which um, the, uh, his protest caught on. Uh, somebody noticed the theses, copied them down, printed them, uh, and within a couple of months, the whole of Germany was talking about them. So, uh, you know, that was the, that was the thing. Um, and then later on, people looking back said, well, where did this all start? Uh, and that was the date that they fixed on. Mm -hmm. And, and of course there were, there were calls for reform in the church before that particular event took place. So um, who were some of the forerunners of the Protestant Reformation, or, or at least uh, those who came before Luther, and, and what were their chief complaints? Oh, well, the, the reform of the church was a constant theme, uh, I mean, for several centuries, uh, and it, it really depends on, on who you are and what you consider uh, counts as reform as to who you would include. For instance, uh, you might include somebody like Francis of Assisi, who uh, objected to the wealth which uh, so many uh, prominent church people uh, had and uh, advocated a, a life of poverty and service to others and so on. That was a kind of reform, um, you know, which took place, I mean, 300 years before uh, Luther came along. Um, the, the people we normally think of as predecessors to the Protestants, uh, this, this really begins around the year 1350 or so. I mean, sometime in the middle of the 14th century, um, with somebody like John Wycliffe, um, who was a, a lect theological lecturer in Oxford. Um, and Wycliffe's main concern was, uh, first of all, that the Bible was not uh, being treated as the supreme authority in matters of faith. Um, theoretically, it was, but uh, there were so, so many accretions from tradition and from custom and other things like that, um, that the, the, the word of the scriptures, the voice of the scriptures was no longer being heard properly. Uh, so that was one thing. Um, another thing that bothered Wycliffe was the idea that uh, you could somehow turn um, bread and wine um, into the body and blood of Christ, the, the, the notion of transubstantiation, uh, which he regarded as philosophically impossible. 
uh, and so he protested against that. Um, later on, uh, you had people in um, uh, in Bohemia, which is now part of the Czech Republic, Jan Hus uh, and his followers who uh, had similar concerns, um, although they were more preoccupied with the idea that um, those who are going to Holy Communion should receive the, the wine as well as the bread, um, where, because the, the cup the, of wine had been withdrawn. Uh, from the from people and and Hus and his followers were complaining about that. So that's another kind of of, uh, of reformer. Um, and then there are many people of this sort who uh, you know objected either to um, practices of this kind which they felt were not uh, sufficiently grounded in in the scriptures. Um, they thought that the the church authorities were taking too much power uh, to themselves um, and that. Uh, generally, uh, in different ways, um, the church had kind of painted itself into a corner and was no longer uh, fulfilling the tasks or, or preaching the gospel in the way that it ought to. Um, and of course, the whole business of um, of selling indulgences, which finally uh, set the uh, the Reformation uh, rolling, um, was another grievance, another problem that uh, came about. There had, in fact, been a council of the church called in 1512, five years before Luther's protest, and that had ended only a few months previously, uh, which had been dedicated to the to reforming uh, the system. So reformation was in the air, uh, and it really was a question of uh, how it would take off and uh, in what basis. Mm-hmm. Now, Martin Luther was the leader of the Protestant Reformation in Germany, or or became the the leader, the face of the Reformation in Germany. Uh, but there were other reformers in other nations as well. So, who were some of the other influential reformers, and where were they? Where did the Reformation spread? Well, uh, of course, the 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 person who is most close, uh, who was closest to Martin Luther, uh, was a Swiss reformer, uh, uh, Ulrich or Ulrich Zwingli, um, who began uh, a similar Reformation in Zurich, in, in what is now Switzerland, more or less at the same time as Luther. In fact, um, there's a certain amount of controversy as to who came first and uh, whether Zwingli was influenced by Luther or the other way around, or, you know, this is an argument that people have, but uh, he was certainly doing that at that time. Um, And there were other uh, cities in Switzerland, uh, notably Basel, um, and of course, later on, Geneva, where Calvin uh, found a home, uh, which also um, were uh, drawn to the the reforming cause. Um, The Reformation spread from uh, Germany into Scandinavia uh, and to some degree also into France, uh, mainly by followers of Luther who um, who lived in those places. I mean, it just you know, uh, people read his work and they um, uh, they gradually or they were persuaded by his arguments uh, and fell into line. One of the the most famous was a man called Martin Bootser. Uh, who uh, was in the city of Strasbourg. Strasbourg is now in France, but it was at the time in Germany. Um, and he began a, a reforming movement there. Uh, he was one of Luther's uh, earlier followers. 
um, in other places, in the British Isles uh, in particular, um, the Reformation took longer to develop. It wasn't uh, for another 10 or 15 years um, after Luther uh, that um, uh, the English reformers really got going. Um, and uh, so they, they, that was a different thing altogether. But uh, of course, they also were influenced by uh, Martin Luther to a large extent. Now, it seems to me that one overlooked point of discussion uh, regarding the Protestant Reformation uh, is just how diverse the personalities and the separate uh, movements or occurrences were. Um, so how did the Reformation differ from place to place and reformer to reformer, if you will? Well, yes, uh, of course, personalities and every every individual has their own, don't they? So inevitably, uh, you're going to get um, leaders and great leaders in particular tend to have very uh, tend to have outstanding personalities, and so uh, the chances of of uh, having conflict, you know, between them is is increased because they are powerful people. Um, Luther was motivated mainly by the question of justification by faith alone. Um, you know, do you get into heaven by your works, by what you do, uh, or by what you believe? Uh, and of course, it was the, the question of faith, uh, as opposed to works, which, uh, which dominated his whole way of thinking. Um, Swingley, on the other hand, was more interested in the sacraments um, and the question of whether transubstantiation was a reality or not, you know, whether the, the, the bread and wine really were the body and blood of Christ. Um, Luther wasn't so bothered about that. Um, and when that issue was uh, raised, uh, he tended to be rather conservative. And so trying to get the followers of Luther or Luther himself and Swingley together um, to make common cause for the Reformation was impossible because they were coming at it from different angles. Um, another uh, issue, of course, was uh, the whole question of politics because um, the reformers had to ha have some kind of backup, some kind of support. And basically, um, they relied on local rulers who would protect them. Uh, but the local rulers, of course, had their own agendas. Uh, and uh, you see this, for example, in Zurich, where uh, the city council uh, basically contained or tried to contain um, Zwingli um, by saying things like, uh, you, you, you must continue with the practice of infant baptism, which had been questioned by people in, in the church, uh, because to do otherwise would be socially uh, unacceptable. Um, uh, things like this. So the, the course of the of, of the Reformation, was, you know, so I was to say suffered. It was influenced um, by considerations which were not necessarily uh, purely theological. Uh, and of course, as time went on um, uh, and uh, the Reformation spread, then these local considerations um, became um, uh, much more important. Um, of course, England is a classic case uh, where the, the Reformation was introduced because the king wanted to annul his marriage um, and, and felt that he had the right to do this, uh, you know, and the Pope couldn't stand in his way. And so the question of papal authority uh, was really at the heart of, of his desire for reformation, rejecting um, uh, the, the imposition of a, of a, a discipline uh, from outside the country. So that's a whole, a whole other thing. And uh, as you go you know, around... Uh, 
Europe, uh, you find that each place, each uh, situation uh, would differ in these ways, and of course that influenced whether the the, refor the, the reform movement um, took place and how it was uh, how it was used and how it developed. Now, I've, with all of that diversity in mind, some parts of the Reformation being um, very, uh, I guess, theologically driven. Uh, when we think of Calvin, we certainly think of that. Um, and then some being more politically driven, or at least mm -hmm. there being more political consideration there. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I, I guess the Reformation in England was that way, right? There was mm -hmm. a lot more um, political intrigue going on there. Yes. Um, a bit more exciting for that as well, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, um, well, yeah, that's right. And, and uh, of course... Uh, you can't, uh, you couldn't predict this in advance. Um, I mean, Luther, for example, was very opposed to Henry VIII's desire to annul his marriage. He thought that Henry was entirely wrong about that. Um, and so Henry was sort of attacking the papacy and the Pope's authority. Um, and in, at one level should have been an ally of Luther, but Luther wouldn't accept him, um, you know, because he felt that, that Henry's uh, motives were not we're not pure, shall we say. Mm -hmm. um, so with all of this diversity in mind, um, what were the, the main ideas or beliefs that the Protestant reformers had in common? So in other words, were there, were there certain ideas or doctrines that held the Protestant Reformation together despite all of this diversity? Oh, certainly, yes. Um, I mean, the, the, the heart of the Protestant Reformation, I think the thing which uh, is common to everyone, is the supreme authority of Holy Scripture. Uh, the idea that um, the Bible, as the Word of God, uh, should have the, the deciding voice um, in uh, theological controversy. So the centrality of the Bible was very important. Tied to that, um, the centrality of preaching, because how were people going to know what the Bible said? Uh, well, they, they, they had to be taught. So uh, the, the preaching ministry uh, was very much at the heart of the Protestant Reformation. Beforehand, and in the Catholic tradition, um, it was the administration of the sacraments. You could go to a, a mass, for example, and receive the, 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 the bread, which was the trans, this transubstantiated body of Christ. But there might not be a sermon. Um, you know, the preaching was very weak or uh, sporadic in, in many uh, places, whereas preaching became central uh, in, in Protestant churches and the administration of the sacraments, and in particular the Holy Communion, uh, became less common. Um, than, it, than it had been before. So that's one thing. Um, another thing, of course, which united all Protestants uh, was justification by faith alone. Um, you could not call yourself a Protestant if you thought that, uh, you know, you could do something to earn your own salvation. Uh, so that was another thing. Um, the whole question of assurance of salvation, that if you believe in Christ, you trust in Christ, you will go to heaven when you die. Um, there is no such place as purgatory. There's no uh, doubt, of, uh, you know, in, in, in the mind of, um, uh, of the church uh, as to where you would end up uh, after death. Uh, that's another thing which, uh, you know, very clearly tied people together. Um, the notion that the, uh, the clergy were a, were a separate 
group which had to be cut off from the rest of society um, by enforced celibacy, for example. Um, this was abandoned. Uh, and all Protestants agreed about that. All Protestants believed that uh, members of the Congre uh, of the churches, ordinary lay people, uh, should have a say in uh, in the government of the church. So the whole way in which churches were operated, were were, were run, um, changed. Um, and these things were common across uh, across the board. Uh, so I think there there were definitely many things which. Uh, which united Protestants. The, the, the differences were relatively minor. Hmm. Um, and as the Reformation progressed, um, different churches or what would become denominations uh, would eventually develop. Mm -hmm. um, and generally speaking, uh, particularly in, in the early stages of the Reformation, the Reformers did not intend to break from the Catholic Church, right? They wanted to, they wanted reform, but not division. Um, so why did they find it so difficult to join together, particularly if those um, differences were relatively minor? Why did they find it so difficult to join together rather than becoming separate groups eventually? Well, I think there were two main reasons for why joining together was difficult. Um, one, I've already mentioned that the the motive for reformation in the first place differed from uh, you know one reformer to another, uh, and therefore the the agenda, the, uh, the 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 order of priorities was different. Um, and when you get this kind of thing, especially with a, a, a what is essentially a new movement. Um, a lot of the secondary issues, uh, for example, the whole question of, of transubstantiation, uh, you know, I, many people hadn't really thought that through. I mean, it's easy for us today, of course, to uh, go back and we, because we have a sort of systematized Protestant theology uh, and say, well, why didn't they talk about this or why didn't they sort that out? Um, but mm -hmm. the, the people at the time, of course, were uh, were operating from one day to the next. I mean, they would, you know, discover a new issue, a new question, a new problem that had to be um, uh, that had to be raised, and so you know there wasn't a sort of fixed um, agenda uh, in the way that we might understand today. Uh, and of course, by the time that happened, by the time people uh, developed confessions of faith and um, you know some sort of tried to get some kind of standard together, I think the basic problem uh, that the reformers faced was um, lack of agreed leadership. Um, I mean, we think of Martin Luther, but Martin Luther, of course, was in one part of Germany. Luther didn't have uh, the kind of authority over the over the church that, say, the Pope had. Uh, I mean, he wasn't recognized, uh, you know, uh, uh, as an authority um, uh, around the world. And uh, because Luther depended for his uh, survival um, on local rulers in Germany, um, of course, uh, you know, the local rulers weren't particularly interested in surrendering their, what to them was a newfound influence uh, on the life of the church. So you could say that the churches were nationalized in a way, the Protestant churches, uh, and uh, they became closely tied to the, to the civil uh, state. Um, and, uh, and of course, once that happened, the civil state wasn't going to 
give up its uh, its right to interfere in the life of the church. You see, I mean, this this sort of thing, um, mm-hmm. and uh, so it became difficult in 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 that way. Um, and then, of course, there were the people who protested uh, against any church-state connection. I mean, the Anabaptists, for instance, uh, who thought this whole thing was wrong uh, and that they ought to be completely separated from from any secular authority, which. Today, of course, we're much more sympathetic to that view uh, than people were in the 16th century. Uh, but in the 16th century, the church and state were so closely intertwined that total separation was uh, was impossible. I mean, you, you couldn't do that. Um, uh, you know, because not so much because the church didn't want it, but because the state wouldn't permit it. Uh, they were determined to. Uh, to keep the church uh, under their control as much as they possibly could. So people who objected to that, of course, became, well, outlaws in effect. Um, and so these different, uh, uh, you know, opinions, different ways of thinking um, uh, surfaced. And there really was no common authority, no one who had the 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 prestige and the uh, recognition uh, to be able to gather everybody to cut together and knock heads together and say, look, you know, we've got to come to a common agreement, uh, sort out our priorities and unite. Um, they just that that kind of thing just didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Now here we are, um, as I mentioned, um, some 500 years or so after the quote-unquote, official beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, in in your opinion, are the greatest gains or accomplishments that have come from the Protestant Reformation? Well, I think the greatest uh, single accomplishment is uh, the way in which the work of the Holy Spirit was understood. Uh, That before the Reformation, uh, when the work of the Holy Spirit was discussed, which it wasn't very often, but when it was, um, the Holy Spirit was uh, perceived as uh, operating on external objects, um, you know, that uh, he would come into the bread and the wine and communion and change them into the body and blood of Christ. Um, you could lay hands on, on somebody, turn them into a priest, um, give this person power uh, to perform the miracle of changing the body uh, the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. And this was all done externally. Uh, the Whether or not the, the, the person ordained in that way was a believer uh, or, or lived a life, uh, you know, uh, that corresponded to the faith he supposedly preached, um, this was an irrelevance because people said it was like a power, uh, you know, which was given uh, to the, this person and this person had the power, whether he had the faith or, or not. I mean, it was, that, that, that didn't matter. Whereas the reformers said, no, the Holy Spirit doesn't work like this. The Holy Spirit works in the hearts and minds of the believer. Uh, and therefore, if you if your mind and, and your heart and your spirit have not been changed, uh, if you have not been born again, to use the biblical uh, phrase, um, then you aren't really a Christian at all. So uh, the Protestant Reformation had a much more um, personal uh, approach. The, 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 uh, our relationship to God is, 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 in a sense, much more individual. Now, this doesn't mean to say that it's individualist in the sense that it cuts you off from other people, no. Uh, but uh, it's something that each person um, has to uh, be responsible for. 
This was a very important thing. Um, tied to this very closely was a new emphasis on predestination. Um, today we think of the predestination, um, you know, as often people think of this in a rather negative way. Uh, but in the 16th century, um, the, the doctrine of predestination was very liberating because uh, what it meant was uh, that God could choose anybody, um, uh, you know, for himself. God could transform the life of anyone he chose to transform. Transform, so that a peasant or uh, you know somebody who had no social standing um, in the world at that time could become uh, you know a, a major preacher and teacher of the gospel, uh, whereas an important person, a noble or a king or something like that, uh, might be overlooked, passed over, and in, in in the life of the kingdom of heaven have no place or standing whatsoever. And so once this idea took hold, you see, that, that God could choose anybody and use just anybody for whatever purpose he had in mind, um, this uh, transformed society in a very um, uh, fundamental way. And it was the basis, really, uh, for uh, the, the, the democracy that we have today. Um, uh, you know, the recognition that, that every person, every individual uh, has a value and um, you know, can can be chosen by God and used by Him in His sovereign in His sovereign way. Uh, so the breakdown of of a hierarchical society, um, you know, was a very um, very important gain of the Reformation. Education was another thing. You couldn't put the Bible at the center of of your faith if people didn't read it and couldn't read it. Uh, and you couldn't read it, of course, if you didn't have the education necessary to be able to read. So uh, school. And, and literacy were fundamental to Protestantism. And so once we, you take that into account, um, uh, of course, uh, the whole of society has changed because all of a sudden um, you have the, not just the availability uh, of learning and knowledge, but the insistence that this is important, uh, you know, in the uh, in your faith and in your um, uh, in in your walk with God. So that's a, a huge thing. Um, and of course, today these things are universally accepted. I mean, everybody um, uh, believes in education. Everybody believes that all human beings are fundamentally equal, uh, and so on. Uh, you know, that God can use anyone He chooses. So that so that has really made a tremendous impact. Problem, well, I think, as I've said before, uh, the question of, um, the, of of unity. I mean, how do you get people together? How do you get people to agree? Um, and you may agree in general terms on most things, but uh, when there are disagreements, when there are conflicts, somebody has to sort them out. And if they can't be sorted out, well, then you have further division. Um, and of course, this is what happened. Uh, you know, people people who weren't happy with whatever was going on uh, would just walk out and start another church. And this still goes on today. Right. Um, you know, rather than compromise, rather than seek unity, uh, they just go off and start their own thing. And um, and this is a problem because um, you can't. I mean, the truth. Uh, is, is one and um, you know if you go on dividing and subdividing and sub subdividing uh, you don't know where you are anymore so that is that would be the biggest problem mm -hmm. it's like um, C.S. Lewis's uh, depiction of hell and the great divorce yeah right? um, where <laughs> everyone gets what they want and continues spreading and spreading and spreading until um, there's uh, no one can can stand to live together. Right, um, well, that's it. 
Um, now, one last question, uh, and the Protestant Reformation is obviously um, ha- has been a topic of conversation and writing, and um, for for many many years, uh, along with uh, the individual figures within the Reformation. But uh, for our listeners who who want to explore more about the Protestant Reformation or the figures involved in in mm-hmm. the Reformation, where would you point them? Uh, what books or resources would you recommend? Well, that's a big question. Um, the probably the the best general history of the Reformation that's available at the moment um, is by uh, a professor from Oxford called Dermot McCulloch, and it's just called the Reformation. Very simple book, published by Penguin. Um, it's a fairly thick paperback, but it's easy to read, um, and that's probably your your best uh, initial source on the subject right now. Um, Otherwise, of course, you get into uh, individuals. I mean, lots of people have written about Martin Luther, um, uh, you know, and there are good books uh, on that. Probably the classic uh, study uh, is still that of Roland Bainton, B-A-I-N-T-O-N, who described the life of Martin Luther. Uh, John Calvin also, there are plenty of biographies on him. Um, I would recommend, I think, one by Bruce Gordon, which is published by Yale University Press. Um, uh, and, and there are many like that. I mean, the English Reformation uh, is is well covered. I mean, the classic study is by a man called A.G. Dickens, uh, who is not Charles Dickens, but has the same surname, so easy to remember. Um, that would be the, the classic study of it, uh, I suppose. Uh, and new books have come out all the time. I mean, um, there's a very good uh, biography of John Knox, the Scottish reformer, uh, by a, a woman called Jane Dawson, um, which just appeared, I think, last year or the year before. Uh, and it's it's very well written, very good. Um, so that's really what um, what I would, uh, would recommend. The problem, of course, right now is with the 500th anniversary. So many books are appearing um, that finding a book on the Reformation is, is really quite easy. Um, I think what you have to do is go online and look for book reviews, um, you know, of these different uh, volumes. If you see one, uh, you know, for sale or come across it, um, check the reviews to see what the reviewers say, um, because it's, you know, we're just overwhelmed at the moment with different material and it's impossible to keep up. I mean, I can't keep up with everything. Um, so, uh, you know, other people won't be able to either. Well, Dr. Bray, thank you for uh, taking time out to uh, discuss this this monumental uh, movement, uh, event, and, and larger-than-life figures with us today. Uh, it's been great to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 